Hello and welcome to Coffee with Conservationists, a podcast where I sit down with anyone who dedicates their life to protecting, documenting and researching the natural world. I talk to them about their work in areas such as wildlife conservation, biology, wildlife filmmaking, human and wildlife coexistence, community projects, intersectional environmental activism and much more. You can find out all about the reasoning behind the coffee connection over on my Instagram at Coffee with Conservationists. Today I'm featuring coffee from Easy Jose. These guys very kindly gifted two bags of their coffee to try and as usual I'll be talking all about them and who they are at the end of the episode. In this episode I talk with Madison O'Connell, an animal photojournalist and filmmaker and an activist for cetacean captivity. We talk about her student film Tales of Confinement, her experience of filming captive whales and dolphins, The Empty, The Tanks campaign and more. Hi Madison, welcome to the podcast again after that tech issue just there. Um, Thank you for taking the time to redo these first couple of questions and talk to me. Um, Again, we'll, we'll start it off by getting to know you. Could you kind of give us a rundown of who you are and where your love of nature first started? Hi George, uh, thank you for having me. Um, so I'm Madison O'Connell, I'm a photographer and filmmaker and um, a graduate of Marine and Natural History Photography at Falmouth University. Um, oh, where did my love of nature first start? Um, it sounds cliche to say that I've always felt connected to nature and always loved being outdoors, but it is kind of true. Um, I've I've grown up in Somerset, um, so I've had sort of beautiful surroundings. Um, I, when I was younger, I was really into horse riding and would spend like every weekend, you know, like just around horses and loving just you know going out on hacks just in the countryside and sort of um, yeah, being from Somerset, that's quite a, a dumb thing. Um, but thinking more about my like love for the sort of like marine environment, I think. My dad played a big part in that uh, with me growing up. He's a builder by trade, but um, he's always had boats and loves uh, fishing and knows way more than I think he gives himself credit for about all the species. Um, So I've been fortunate enough to go out with him on his boats and fortunate enough to travel lots, usually to um, coastal environments. And we... We, you know, he would always take us out on boats when we were abroad. Um, so I think that's influenced me probably more than in the past I've realised and probably more than he realises as well. Yeah, that's great. Um, it's great to hear kind of everyone's little origin story, as it were. Um, everyone's got a different angle on that question. So it's really interesting to hear yours, uh, especially relating to the marine side of things. Um, you are a graduate of the course that I'm currently doing, the degree at Falmouth, which is Marine and Natural History Photography. Um, obviously, we are pretty restricted with these whole the global pandemic and in what we can do um, with the course, but it is still a brilliant degree and I'm still really excited and getting a lot out of it. Um, kind of, could you, could you briefly talk about what made you apply for the degree in the first place and what were you hoping to get out of it when you first started? Yeah, sure. Um, So first of all, it's a great degree and I'm really excited for you because I think every year it's just growing in strength and the best is definitely yet to come for you. So um, that's, yeah, I'm really excited (laughs) for you. Um, But what made me apply in the first place? Well, I always thought I would go and do marine biology or marine conservation if I went to uni. And it wasn't until my GCSEs um, came and I didn't do as well in the science subjects as I wanted to do. And to go on to do marine biology, obviously you need to have um, quite a good understanding of uh, of biology and some other sciences. So I was a little bit disheartened by that. And I, I really loved art at GCSE and my art teacher was a photographer and she sort of in, implemented lots of photography, uh, you know, optional um, on, on the GCSE, like art, art uh, side of things. So 
um, she really got me into photography and I thought, oh, I really enjoy this. So when I didn't do so well in my GCSE science, I decided that I would carry on doing photography at A-level. And I also did do an applied science at um, A-level, which isn't the same as doing um, like straight biology or straight chemistry, but it was, it was better than nothing. So I kind of loosely had an option to do something science related if I wanted to. Um, and I was just kind of trying to be quite open-minded at that point. Um, and I carried on like loving the photography side of things and kind of struggling my way through the science side. Um, and it was actually my photography teacher who said about the degree in the first place. I think there was somebody in the year above me um, during my A-levels who was looking at Falmouth University and she had just mentioned that he had mentioned this course. Um, and I was like, wow, this sounds like, this sounds me, this sounds perfect. So I went away and I, I researched it and I was just like, yeah, that's what I want to do. I don't want to do anything else. This is going to incorporate the science side of things and that sort of visual communication side of things, which I love. So that's kind of where it all started. Um, and then it was kind of them trying to build a portfolio that would allow me to get onto the degree because I had kind of done a lot of portrait photography and quite sort of like experimental stuff, quite artsy, um, but I hadn't really photographed any animals. So I set myself a task of trying to build a portfolio to be able to get onto the degree. Um, and I have always had an interest in captive animals. So I decided that I would do this captive project. So I went to a couple of local zoos and, and shot some sort of um, uh, moody kind of images um, and as well as some like landscape stuff. So um, that got me onto the degree. Um, and I think in my first year, I wasn't really sure what I wanted to get out of the degree. I think um, there was a lot of uh, people that were sort of thinking, kind of the Nat Geo route was going to be for them I'm going to shoot for you know Nat Geo and I'm going to be um, a wildlife photographer just you know straight wildlife photography and I think that probably did cross my mind when I was in my first year um, and then it just you know the degree sounds quite niche marine and natural history photography and it is but it wasn't until sort of like my second year that I really that really sort of winded it out we got to look at film and I initially was so against film. I was thinking, no, I'm doing a photography degree. I don't want to experiment with film. And I kind of like protested a little bit and had a few words with my lecturers because I was like, I don't understand why suddenly we have to do film. Um, and then a year later, I made two films. So I really went on a, a, a big journey on that degree and um, they embraced it. They, you take an idea and they, you know, just kind of just see how far you can run with it. Yeah, yeah, that's really interesting, actually, because I, it's kind of a very similar route to what I went through, um, except a bit later on, I did um, a biology A-level that I actually only did the AS for, so half the year, uh, sort of half the course, um, and realised kind of, you know, this isn't going to work out for me, my dreams of uh, doing like wildlife uh, conservation and animal behaviour might not be the best route to go down. Um, because you needed all these big grades in, in science and uh, biology especially, but also a lot of courses wanted chemistry as well, um, which I just didn't have at all. So yeah, really interesting because it's kind of similar. I was like, what do I do? Um, just search this. I think it was about, I was talking to my flatmate the other day, I think it was about four or five days before the UCAS deadline, I decided I wanted to go to university. Um, and yeah, I kind of had a bit of a panic and suddenly just applied for this with, with kind of everything that I had and somehow got in and I'm just yeah very very grateful to be here because it is it is an amazing degree and it combines all these really awesome skills um and yeah yeah brilliant degree and I'm really excited to get get the most out of it um and it's good that you talked about captive species as well because I actually had a, a wildlife education uh, officer from Chester Zoo on the podcast a couple of episodes ago um, so yeah definitely interested to get more of those conversations started mm -hmm. um, so leading on to definitely the sort of thing I want to talk to you about most is your your final year film and your kind of work with captive cetaceans 
uh, your final year project kind of was this was this film Tales of Confinement. It's a, it's a brilliant film. It's really kind of emotional at times and yeah, really powerfully made. Um, could you talk about the process of making it? Kind of what made you want to go to these places and document the plight of these captive cetaceans? Yeah, of course. Um, so I kind of had a little bit of a freak out um, this sort of the summer of my second year because, you know, there's a lot of talk about, you know, your third year is like the big year. And it is, it's, it feels like there's quite a lot of pressure around it. And um, I knew that I wanted to do film. I wanted to produce a film having sort of protested film in the second year. Um, and I wasn't really sure what avenue to go down. I had done some sort of previous work on like plastic pollution and that was, I really enjoyed that and that was great. But there was also a lot of other people doing stuff around plastic pollution. And I kind of thought, I, no, I want to do something different. So that's when I kind of really sort of like went within and thought, like, what, what am I really passionate about? And I kind of went full circle to um, what I had done to produce the portfolio that got me onto the degree in the first place, which was um, about captive animals. Um, a little bit different because it was based in UK zoos. But um, I have like always, so I think from the age of about 14, um, have really, really been interested in captive cetaceans and particularly um, captive orcas. Um, and yeah, I, I probably should have mentioned this to start, but I have watched Free Willy more times than I can count. Um, I literally have, I can memorize all the dialogue. Um, so I thought, well, why don't I do something that's based um, around captive orcas? Um, but I really didn't want to go and create another blackfish because that fit, like that documentary is just you can't set out on any project wanting to top that it's just not yeah. gonna work yeah, it's, <laughs> like it's, it's just not. yeah no um and I think I had to make the lectures on the on the course really clear like that I said I, I don't want to go and do like blackfish too or you know a, a mini blackfish mm. so um we uh so the, the way that the sort of third year works is that you do a slightly smaller sort of um, final project, which is sort of like a development for then your your um, final major project. So uh, for the sort of smaller one, I thought, well, before I go and spend a load of money and go um, to, you know, a, sort of, uh, to America to do any filming, uh, there are orcas in captivity in France and there's orcas in captivity in Tenerife. So I decided that I would go and do a shorter film um, which was sort of just seeing if I could do it and having a little practice of the filming styles and kind of just seeing if anyone would mind if I go and film here. It's a little bit of a gray area um, as to whether you can sort of get permission to film at these places or not. So I just mm -hmm. go in as a tourist um, and try and just uh, put my big sunglasses on and pretend like I'm really want to be there. So uh, that's what I did. I went to France, uh, I'm Marineland in France, and then I went to Laurel Park in Tenerife and I made a five minute film uh, called A Captive Audience. And that was kind of the, where it all began. Uh, and that was sort of then the, uh, the project that I showed the lecturers and said, okay, well, this is, this is what I've done. And then this is what I want to do. Um, mm. So they, you know, it got really, it was really well received them. And obviously you develop that. Um, so I then, I think we had like the Christmas uh, break and I was planning about, you know, how was I going to do this? Um, and I originally was going to go on my own. I was going to travel to Florida on my own and I was going to visit uh, SeaWorld in Orlando, a swim of dolphin uh, facility in, Or in Orlando. And then I was going to travel down to Miami to see a uh, orca called Lolita who uh, resides at Miami Sea Aquarium and she's been there for 50 years. Her story is just so tragic um, and I think that's one of the parts in the film that um, I have the most feedback about just saying that they, people just can't believe that that's, that's happened. Yeah. Um, and then I kind of I thought this story needed something else because it was all it was going to be about these animals um, and it, the film is about those animals and that, you know, their horrific story, especially Lolita's. Um, but I, it's sort of a last minute decision to 
um, approach my parents and see how they would feel about coming on the trip with me and being part of the film because I feel like they were such an integral part to my story um, and it was something that I wanted to tell because I had grown up like quite a few people I would imagine going to these parks um, I had you know I had I have swam with dolphins myself when I was a lot younger I had um, love to go to dolphin shows and see yeah. these killer whales perform um, and this was you know this is very much pre-blackfish pre the cove um, but in this sort of weird juxtaposition my parents would always then take me like we'd go whale watching and see these animals in their natural habitat and we would on the same um, on the same holiday we could go to a dolphin like show and, and park or marine park and then we would go and see dolphins in the wild and we wouldn't think much of it um, and I found that part of the story really interesting, which is why I wanted them to come. And they were really receptive to it. Um, and I tried to sort of do it in a vlog style so I didn't have to sit my parents down in a hotel room with lights and make them feel really intimidated by it. It was a very personal story and I wanted it to be um, shown in that way. And there's times I think we're walking along like um, a really busy road and I'm trying to just discreetly film because my dad's saying some really powerful stuff about how he didn't know better and he thought that the you know the tank that you see when they perform in it he just assumed that the orcas would then go out back to a bigger tank um but what you see is where they live um so i just felt that they were so integral to the story and how i wanted to, co to convey it um so yeah that's how that sort of idea evolved yeah, that's really, really powerful. And I, I really, um, that's one of the things that really struck me when watching it was the kind of the, the childhood connection and especially how you um, kind of used your your family's experiences um, to kind of, you know, as the kind of backbone of the film, I thought that was really powerful. Um, just out of interest, you know, very, very briefly, um, what, what camera did you use for that? Because I can't imagine it's easy to smuggle a big film camera into somewhere like that yeah um that's that's a really good point actually and that was one of the things why i one of the reasons why i wanted to go and sort of go to france and to tenerife that weren't you know as far as going to florida to kind of see you know what uh what response am i going to get i just tried to sort of play a really happy tourist role and i um i used a, a variety of cameras so a lot of stuff was actually shot on my phone um, because of that very reason. And I think, uh, don't underestimate a power, like, you know, the, the capabilities of an iPhone. <laughs> yeah. Um, I used a Canon G7X, which is a really small compact, looks like a, you know, something mm. that maybe like your grandparents would use on holiday <laughs> to take holiday snaps. Um, and then I did use a, I think it was a Canon 60, um, and I did take a variety of lenses. I think I did take a, um, a 300 to 400 lens and as you can imagine putting that on sitting at the back of a stick like a stadium you that raised some eyebrows uh that combined with a mic on top um I think I got that out of my bag once and then that came straight off yeah. um because it just drew too much attention so um a lot of the time it was just kind of assessing the situation like it, it, it was it was harder to film in um I would say uh, Miami Sea Aquarium it was really difficult to film and a lot of that was shot on my phone. Um, I actually think at that point I, I had said to, I think I gave my mum the little vlogging camera because it's just sort of a, a point and shoot. I think my dad had my phone and then I had my camera because you couldn't, you couldn't see Lolita when um, there were no shows. Uh, mm. she's, she's locked away and they are very, they, yeah, all eyes are on you. <laughs> um, so yeah, it's just about assessing the situation and just trying to, yeah, read the vibe. <laughs> yeah, definitely. Um, and really important to say that, yeah, never underestimate an iPhone or a GoPro or any small camera like that, because it's just, you know, for that kind of, I guess, on the ground conservation filmmaking, it is, you know, they are really important tools. You don't need these big flashy cameras, um, for sure. It's important to recognise the importance of kind of filming like that. Um, just, just kind of, uh, for people who don't know, um, I wanted to, I'm always trying to make my podcast as accessible as possible, but, um, Blackfish, you talked about really amazing documentary. 
um, is the story of, is it, is it Tilikum? Is that how you pronounce it? Yeah. Um, yeah, that's an right. An individual and orca in captivity and the kind of psychological impact of keeping orcas and captive and other cetaceans in captivity. And, you know, that was a really another amazingly powerful documentary. And I can see how you kind of didn't want to try and top it because I'm sure people one day might do but it, it was just such a powerful piece of, of work it's kind of a unique piece of work um there's not really you can't really copy it in any way um and and do the same as they did and then also the cove um is another documentary um focusing on activist rico barry and a film that he made with uh filmmakers and undercover filmmakers about uh, a place in Japan where they capture dolphins for meat and for the entertainment industry and another really brilliant documentary. Um, I studied that for one of my first term research projects and it was, yeah, quite harrowing to watch. I think if I, if I didn't, um, if I hadn't had to research it and hadn't decided to research it, I probably wouldn't have made myself watch it just, just, you know, on a Friday night, I think it's pretty, um, pretty grim that kind of stuff but very very important to be made and to be seen and so many many people know that it's not good to keep large animals in confined spaces it's just you know it's cruel there's really very little justification for it especially when you get to cetaceans um so dolphins and whales and uh but for those of my listeners who who don't know could you sort of break down uh, physically, mentally, psychologically for the animal, why it's so bad? Yeah, um, so first of all, the death rate for captive orcas is, I think it's 2.5 times higher than uh, of, you know, uh, wild orcas, which is um, not really very surprising to me, um, but it might be to other people. Mm. Um, and these are animals that are capable of, you know, traveling a hundred miles a day, or um, there's a, there's a little bit of an argument about how, you know, how far did they actually travel, but for argument's sake, let's say a hundred miles a day. Um, so you think, you know, you think about what a tank can offer and then you think about uh, what they would be doing if they were, how far they would be traveling if they were hunting for fish. Um, so, first of all yeah just the, the sheer that there's just not no space for them um and they get bored so they will log which um literally just means that they will float at the surface um looking like quite lifeless um which is a really unnatural behavior for them to do um sometimes they will lay on the um bottom of the tank floor um again which is a really unnatural thing for them to do um they bite and, and chew the side of tanks and gates and anything that they can chew in their tanks, which leads to such severe dental damage that um, if you see a, um, an image of a captive orca, uh, it's, it's likely that their, their teeth will look like they've got holes in, um, where they're really sort of ground down and the trainers and their sort of care providers will have to flush that out kind of daily with water. So they're kind of having to have this sort of like daily dental treatment um, due to them just, you know, boredom and just wearing, wearing their teeth down on this, you know, it's concrete that they're not, they're not supposed to eat concrete. Um, so uh, there's just, there's so many things I'm trying to think. Um, you'll also find that um, I think uh, in Free Willy, I'm going to use this as an example because I, I, I imagine quite a lot of people have seen this. He, uh, the the well in that is is real. Um, some of it is you know of, uh, effects, but it is a real killer well. Um, and he has a flopped over fin, um, like Tilikum did in in Blackfish as well, which is of the flopped over dorsal fin. So that's the fin, the big fin that sits on their back. Now, if that was straight in a in a male orca, um, they can be anything. They, they can grow up to like eight feet long. So that's like huge um and uh, i think one percent of wild orcas have collapsed dorsal fins yeah a hundred percent of male orcas have collapsed dorsal fins um and yeah it's just it's really strange seeing that 
um, flopped over in comparison to seeing that in the wild where they break the water with these huge fins um, where in captivity they just kind of lie over their, over their backs. Um, yeah, it's, uh, there's, they get frustrated. Um, like you, like you see in blackfish, um, tilicum mm -hmm. is so psychologically damaged that he has, he takes out his frustration, um, and that has led to, you know, multiple people being killed. Um, and it's not just people that they uh, injure or kill; uh, it's it's each it's each other as well. So they will rake each other, and literally, that kind of is is their teeth. Um, raking alongside another orca and you kind of can see i've seen uh, since what 2018 i think i've seen 17 orcas in captivity and there would there would always be some with these rake marks on um and just yeah it's this this just boredom like if you it's always that thing of like if you were locked in uh your room for 50 years like how would you feel and i think um, I, well, I'm hoping that when we come out of lockdown and this, you know, COVID is, you know, eased off, I think the one thing that I really want people to uh, sort of ask themselves next time they're thinking of going to a marine park, um, how did you feel in lockdown when you had your freedom taken away from you, when you couldn't do anything, when you, you know, you couldn't leave your house for like non-essential purposes? Um, that's exactly how, you know, this is exactly how these cetaceans are living their lives. Um, whether that will, whether that message will come across or not, I, I don't know, but um, that would be something that I would really want people to just kind of, you know, just think about. Um, yeah, they're just, they're just so bored. They literally just do laps as well. Um, I, I think it was, um, yeah, it was, it was Marine Land in France. Um, I was there for the whole day. It was in uh, October, so it was very off season. There really wasn't many people there. And the good thing about that park, well, that's probably the wrong word because there's nothing good about it. But um, one of the sort of uh, good things about filming at that park was that you could sit at the Orca Stadium all day. Um, there was, they didn't kick you out. You could just sit there. And I did for most of the day. And I time-lapsed a lot of the stuff. And they just, I just watched it back and it's just the same movements um i after a while i think of an hour of sitting there i would know well that orchid's going to come up there and then it's going to go back down there and then they'll circle around for five times before they then do it again um yeah and it's just these these repetitive behaviors it is just it's appalling to kind of see i mean I, I first saw the film which is um obviously fictional but you know with a real orca um free willy when i was a, a little kid maybe i don't know seven or eight years old and then I watched it again last year in the first lockdown and kind of looked back on it and I realized that it's actually quite a uh, strangely quite a powerful piece of conservation activism almost um, in terms of you know it was ahead of its time when it was made uh, in terms of kind of saying the truth about a lot of captive animals and in in the sort of casting choices it made as well um, and I think there's, there's someone on Instagram I saw uh, around the time that had put you know why it was um why it's you can see it in different ways when you watch it as a child as opposed to when you watch it as an adult and it is um yeah the, the also then sort of watching blackfish i think that same week kind of looking and, and fully realizing the the amount of psychological damage um because i'm not sure how correct the statistic is and i might have just made this up so I don't know if you can fact check me on this, but I don't believe there's ever been a single injury or fatality between an orca and a human in the wild. Yeah, I I don't think there's been a fatality. I'm not 100% sure if there hasn't been any injuries or not, but definitely not fatalities. Yeah, it, it just goes to, goes to show really that, you know, within quite a small amount of time of um, those those uh i don't know what you call them keepers um what's a, a name for the people um, who care about the, uh, care for the orcas when they're in captivity um i mean i would use the word trainer um trainer. yeah there yeah was, yeah. <laughs> yeah there was uh, a, a couple um who who were killed and yeah it's just it, it's harrowing to watch that um 
I think, I mean, I've touched on a few of these areas in the other two questions. Um, empty the tanks. This is a, like a global campaign. Um, and obviously it's, you know, what you've talked about in these last couple of questions, you know, we want to try and campaign for people to not catch any more cetaceans and just not keep them in captivity. Um, but could you kind of explain what empty the tanks is and kind of maybe go over a couple of actions that the average individual at home in lockdown uh, or whatever restrictions they're facing can do to be an activist against cetacean captivity? Yeah, sure. So the Empty the Tanks campaign um, was founded by uh, a lady called Rachel, um, I think it was in 2013, after she had vis visited uh, Taji in Japan, which is um, where the cove is filmed. Um, and I think she was working um, as a maybe a cove monitor, which is um, what the organisation uh, Dolphin Project um, run. Um, and she set that up after after she had gone out and witnessed all of the um, horrific things that happened there. And the campaign promotes using um, education and awareness to end cetacean captivity. Um, so they run like uh, global events um, in non-COVID times. They would once once a year do. Um, there's actually like an empty the tanks day and I've been to an event in London before and you would you know, march the streets of London and it gets a, a big turnout um, and this happens you know in, in quite a lot of major cities around the world. Um, they ran last year a virtual um, event which was which sort of created a lot of noise um, so yeah she's really like doing amazing things with that campaign um, but I think what could what sort of like the average person can do um is don't buy a ticket don't visit these facilities and that's probably quite easy to say now because nobody no nobody's traveling um sort of it's not like people are wanting to book their uh maybe like their summer holiday to say mexico where they have so many swarm of dolphin like programs that um you could yeah it would you would kind of go, oh yeah, I'm going to Mexico. I'm going to, you know, <laughs> go and swim with dolphins. Um, so yeah, don't don't buy a ticket because that, you know, by doing that, you're um, you're saying, yeah, you know, have my money. I, this is okay. Um, and just on that note, actually, I want to um, just say that something that came up for me when I was uh, filming Tales of Confinement. Um, because I did a lot of Instagram stories from in the parks um, and there was a lot of messages of support for the film um, but of course with social media you will always attract some people that aren't so in favour of your work um, yeah. and there was, I got quite a lot of um, trolling uh, about the fact that I had purchased a ticket to enter these facilities to film um, mm -hmm. and full disclosure i I did, I, I paid for these tickets because it's not like I can email uh, SeaWorld and say, oh, hey, I'm making this film, uh, which is, you know, about how bad it is for keeping cetaceans in captivity. Yeah. Can, you give, can you give me a free pass? Like, it just doesn't work like that. Um, so I did buy a ticket to go to all of the, the facilities. Um, and a lot of people, you know, which might sound a bit sort of counterintuitive to what I'm saying is to don't buy a ticket. But my hope that was um, by producing the film, um, and kind of having that more like personal connection is that it might prevent, you know, 10, 20, 30 people going. So it was kind of um, in a, in an investment uh, in in that, if you, if you like. Um, but I just wanted to make that clear because it's something that comes up a lot. <laughs> um, so yeah, don't buy a ticket um, to just go, like if you're to be a tourist and enjoy the show because, you know, these animals are not for your entertainment. Yeah. Um, you can uh, join it like the empty the uh, tanks campaign. Um, so, you know, when we're back in a relatively normal world, um, it's really empowering to, to meet up with like-minded people that um, share the same views as you and march, you know, peacefully on the streets holding like inflatable orcas. It's a really um, powerful day um, and something that, I would recommend if you can go to because I think you'll get a lot out of it. Um, but I think smaller conversations sometimes have more power. Like talk to your your friends, your flatmates, your family. Um, 
you know, they might in a couple of years time or ever think, oh, I'm, we're going to take our children to Florida. You know, we're going to go and do the Disney parks and we're going to go and do SeaWorld and, and have that conversation with them and make them, um, make them aware that it isn't what it seems it is. Um, because, uh, SeaWorld have done an absolutely great job um, at kind of putting this smoke screen post Blackfish. Um, and I won't go in, that's, you know, we could talk uh, um, for hours <laughs> about that. So I won't yeah. go into sort of too much detail, but um, yeah, it's, you know, they're trying to survive it. Um, so just have these conversations. You, there's, it's not just like my film, but there's loads of things on, on YouTube and, um, yeah, just all sorts of information that you can just have these sort of conversations with. And I find that you don't know how much power they hold. You might change just one person's mind and that's then um, one less person buying a ticket and supporting the industry. Um, and another thing sort of on the um, travel side of things is that we have a lot of companies in the UK that still support um, these uh, captive um, industries and marine parks. So they will still sell tickets. Um, so, you know, if you are wanting to go on holiday post COVID, um, maybe just look at trying not to support a company that supports the captive industry. Yeah, that's really good. And I'm, I'm glad you brought that up actually about your transparency in purchasing the ticket. Because obviously, yeah, it is. Sometimes I, I really struggle with this as an idea, but I think sometimes we do have to kind of become part of the system to tackle the system. Um, as especially if you're working kind of in undercover style way as a, as a photographer or filmmaker. And that can be quite hard for a lot of people to, to kind of see and understand. And also, I guess, um, with the, the whole, you know, buying a ticket thing and and sort of getting, moving away from that, that's really important to say because a lot of people uh, with this whole smoke screen, as you said, and the whole kind of amazing job that a lot of these marine parks do at PR and education, um, it kind of, you know, pe people do think that it's an amazing education opportunity and that's all they see it as they don't really or you know as an entertainment for their kids and educating about you know you, you never get this close to a wild cetacean in real life you know and I think yeah it's important to know that there's a lot of people out there who claim to to love animals and love nature but just don't know how much damage is done to these creatures uh, in captivity so that's a really important point to raise um kind of almost getting to the end but I just wanted to ask um, have you have you ever seen orca in the wild? I have, yeah. Um, so uh, in 2018, before a couple of months before, I had sort of seen um, captive orcas with uh, a sort of um, post sort of childhood and having so much more awareness uh, around the issues of them. Uh, I actually saw my first captive orca, which made sort of the whole process a lot worse. Um, so I went to uh, Canada and I went to Vancouver Island um, and uh, I saw, um, I saw uh, the Southern Residents, which are a endangered um, sort of population of killer whales. And I know that you've um, had a, a guest talk about this before. Um, yeah. So that was just the most, that was my, my first killer whale that I saw in the wild was a Southern Resident and that I will always, always be thankful for. Um, and it is just the most amazing thing. Um, I just had tears like streaming down my face. Um, they are, yeah, just just amazing. And I'm really, really hoping that, you know, COVID allows um, travel to happen soon because that is the first place that I'm heading back to. Yeah, I really don't blame you. Yeah, Canada is an amazing place, especially Vancouver Island and around that area. And uh, yeah, the episode you referenced, uh, I spoke to Eleanor Jean, who's making a film about orcas and salmon and the whole ecosystems around there. And that's just a, that's just a fascinating whole other conversation um, and a really fascinating topic. And I guess, yeah, the, the emotions must have been just, oh, I can't even imagine how different you must have, the, the emotions kind of seeing your first wild orca versus seeing your, 
your sort of first captive one post childhood. Um, yeah, I can't even imagine what sort of what those emotions would have been like in terms of the difference there. Um, could you could you describe them a bit? Sort of how you felt yeah. after. Yeah, how you felt kind of seeing your first captive orca so soon after seeing your your first wild one. Yeah, it. Um, I mean, I'm really grateful that I got to go and witness these amazing creatures in the wild. Um, and I, yeah, I don't regret it one bit. I maybe <laughs> didn't get the timing so right um, because it was just truly heartbreaking. Uh, I psyched myself up so much. So the first park I visited was Marineland in France. Um, and I think just, just on that point, I think that when we kind of think about these, you know, captive or particularly captive orcas, we think that that's sort of, you know, like America and um, not that close to us, but literally like a two hour flight. And then I'm able to see these animals. It's, you know, it's happening quite close to home. Um, so I remember I had all of my camera equipment um, and I was really nervous because I just didn't know, you know, am I, am I, are people going to be looking at me? Uh, am I going to draw attention to myself? All of these things going through my head. Uh, and I got in there and I kind of followed the signs to the, to the Orca Stadium. And I had these sort of ridiculously large sunglasses on just to hide the fact that I was sobbing. Um, I just remember walking, yeah, walking into the stadium and just sitting down and just looking around at how run down and just gross it was. There was um, like builders kind of doing tank repairs. It was just in like this awful like looped music. Um, and they just, it was just, it was horrible. It was absolutely heartbreaking. I just, I think for the whole eight hours I was there, I just kind of just weeped the whole time. Um, but on that point, it's, it's, it's strange because having seen orcas in, in the wild um, only a few months before and then seeing these, um, these captive animals, to look at, they look the same. You know, they're, they're black and white. Um, they're whales. Well, you know, they're technically they're dolphins, but um, they look the same, minus the sort of floppy fin. Um, but in my head, I just thought they're so different. Like, it's just... It's crazy like they're so different and they're behaving in such different a different way they had the orcas that i had seen um in france in, in captivity as soon as i walked in they were kind of like playing with like a ball and they were just yeah it was just really really strange um you know and my first experience of then seeing a wild orca was this southern resident that was um on you know hunting for salmon uh, doing such a, a, a natural thing, an instinctual thing. And yet I was looking at these sort of group of three orcas um, nudging a plastic ball around, waiting, just waiting for them, a trainer to come and tell them what to do. Um, it's, it's just heartbreaking. And I, I don't think I would ever get used to seeing, to seeing that. Um, the sort of the next park in, in Tenerife, it got a little bit easier to see, to see these animals. Um, and then in Orlando, it got a, like a little bit easier um, because I'm not saying I got desensitized to it because I don't think I'll ever become desensitized to that because in my eyes, it's so cruel. Um, and yeah, I'm trying, like was trying not to draw too much attention to the fact that I am just crying and I find it really emotional. Um, uh, but then I think the final straw for me was seeing Lolita in Miami Sea Aquarium. Um, I had planned a whole day filming there. Um, I was a little bit unaware of the fact that you could only see her when her sort of like the shows were taking place. And I think they had two shows uh, scheduled for the day, one in the morning and then one slightly later in the afternoon. And we went to the first one and I remember just coming out um, crying and I said, that's it, I'm, I'm done. I don't want to, I don't want to stay and watch the second one. Um, I just want to leave now. So I quickly sat down on a bench, looked through all the footage that I had, decided that I didn't need any more. Um, I didn't want to, I didn't want to watch that again um, because it was so cruel. Like to see her come out of her tank uh, when she leaps out of the water, you see the size of her and then you see the size of the tank beneath her and it's really not much bigger. Um, and yeah. that, 
sat with me for a really long time and after the trip I had planned to start the edit you know quite soon start the logging and, and reviewing the footage but um it it really affected me I really struggled to look through it um and I had to kind of just sit with it for a while because um yeah it was it was really tough um and then yeah I had some space from it which is a little bit difficult because it's a third year project so you have a deadline so you can't take too much time um and then just tried to switch my mentality of like no fighting for these animals putting something together that tells their story um to make to make it you know worthwhile um but it is really tough and i think that's why i am just so keen to get out and see um wild orcas again because i need that um i think i need that faith restored yeah yeah that's um as i said yeah thank you for sharing because i just i can't even begin to imagine um orcas have been one of my favorite animals since actually probably since seeing free willing um as a child and i just uh yeah cannot begin to imagine seeing them in captivity and i'm hoping unless i choose to uh, unless I become involved in some kind of activist project, I'm hoping I will never have to see them in captivity. And I'm hoping that I'll only ever have to see them in the wild. And I'll be able to, um, because it is, yeah, it does not sound like an experience that I would probably deal well with. Um, and I, I, this sounds, this seems really, I'm really sorry that I ended on that question because it was really important. And I wanted to ask you, and I'm just kind of happy that you you felt comfortable to share what you were feeling. But I'm now kind of going on to a bit more of a tame subject and it kind of feels a bit uh, bad to do that. But just, just to go into a bit of a different direction, uh, if that's okay. I've got a few questions here from my, my first year um, sort of fellow marine and natural history photography students. Uh, are you okay to answer just three of those? Yeah, of course. Um, so yeah, it, it's kind of just I, whenever I have a podcast guest that I think will be really interesting to them specifically for the course, I always ask in our group chat, does anyone have any questions? And uh, they often come up with some really nice ones. Um, but first off, Ben asks kind of, what you what are you doing now? And how did the MNHP degree help you get there? Okay, um, so I am a production assistant uh, at the moment. Um, it's not anything to do with uh, natural history um, or animals at all. Um, it's uh, sort of in the in the mental health kind of uh, field, um, but it's a role that I am learning so much in, and I'm gaining so much experience. Um, and I feel really lucky to um, have that job uh, right you know right now uh, I've had it through throughout COVID um, so I feel really lucky and, and fortunate um, so that's sort of like well, you know, one aspect um, I am continuing trying to do uh, some of this like activism uh, work I'm not really that keen on the word activism um, but just yeah keep going through my hard drives um, pulling out anything that I haven't shared before on on social um, any footage any imagery I have I'm trying to sort of have a little play at the moment with like graphics um, and some sort of things like that um, and I'm I'm hoping that uh, I'm not I'm not done on the uh, captive cetacean um, project <laughs> um, and I don't think I'll ever be done on that. Um, I've had some interesting conversations with a few people about things um, that uh, could possibly happen. Um, a little bit tricky at the moment because obviously we can't travel yeah. um, but uh, yeah I I'm not done on that yet <laughs> so um, yeah I'm, I'm going to be doing some more stuff for sure and uh, I'm hoping that uh, I can get out to uh, to Canada especially on Vancouver Island because I've been speaking to a few people there as well about the southern residents so yeah um, good things are hopefully coming it's just going to take a little bit longer. <laughs> yeah um, and uh, Shania asks what was the sort of I know it's really hard to choose and this is kind of when I looked at it I kind of thought it was an impossible question but if you had to choose one what was the standout moment of your time at Falmouth Uni sort of of the degree? Oh wow um, that's really tough <laughs> um, I think uh, my standout moment was that I 
I went to the Galapagos with um, with uni. Um, so uh, I'm I'm hoping for your for your guys' sake that they run that trip in the second year um, for you to be able to go on um, and if you can get a place. Uh, but that is an experience that I don't think I will ever have again. Um, and that was uh, again sounds really cliche, but I would say that that was a real life changing trip for me. Um, it it made me uh, kind of appreciate the natural world in a way that I didn't. I just didn't think was possible. Um, it it literally felt like I was in a David Attenborough uh, documentary. Um, so I imagine. yeah, it was just the most amazing, um, most amazing opportunity that I'm I'm so grateful for. And anyone I meet uh, and I get the opportunity to tell them about how wonderful the Galapagos, Galapagos Islands are, um, I will tell them. Um, and yeah, if any. Um, of your fellow uh, course mates are, are listening to this if they offer that trip try and get on it <laughs> like try and go it's amazing um and you just get the access that you just wouldn't be able to get if you just wanted to sort of like go there yourself um yeah uh, i think that has to be my real standout moment um but i would also say i uh, i really loved the um the speakers that came in uh of sort of like an evening for for a lecture um which i guess is a little i don't know if you guys are able to have that like um remotely we, at the moment yeah we have um visiting speakers i think uh we, we have like the guest speaker program like over the last few weeks that is the, like the whole of Falmouth uni uh and then we have we had guest speakers every week i think for the first term um and we've had i think we've had two so far um, I've not always been able to get on them because Thursdays are one of my busiest days and by the time it gets to 5pm I've already had about seven hours of screen time and I'm just like no I, I don't want to watch this person I'll watch them later um, but it's definitely yeah when I have been able to see them live and ask questions it's it's amazing that the range of people that they've brought in has been it was definitely one of the things that drew me to the course is just the um, pure amount of opportunities that they present to you you know from incredible trips like the Galapagos to just the speakers which are also you know really incredible opportunities to to hear these professionals and experts in their field tell us uh, all about what they do and why they do it um for sure yeah, yeah and they're so generous with their knowledge as well um it you know, they they genuinely seem like they want to uh, be there and to be sharing that, their knowledge with you um so yeah i really loved that and i think i have like a little notebook of just like all their details and like any um sort of like top points and i i, I know i still have that um but you know you can like connect with them on linkedin after and kind of build up your network because you just you never know what might come of it um and i know that there were some some of the things that i uh heard throughout those um guest speakers coming um some stuff has, has really stayed with me so yeah i think that's um was it was really great yeah definitely um now finn last question finn was wondering if you did or a, sort of a two-parter really uh first off did you do the diving part of the course no i didn't i intended to do the diving part of the course and the summer before i came to uni I tried to do my paddy, um, which uh, I tried to do it in the UK, so it was in the quarry, um, and found out a really painful and hard way that I'm not able to dive due to an inner ear problem. <laughs> oh no, um, that's so sad. Yeah, I, uh, that kind of makes the second part of the question obsolete, um, so I won't ask you that, but um, yeah, that, that's really annoying. I kind of, yeah, I know similar people on the course, uh, myself included, for various reasons, aren't able to dive and it's just I, I'm very grateful to the lecturers to you know that they provide alternative opportunities within the marine environment module for us um which you know is really is really great um but yeah that's uh that is sad that you weren't able to dive because as someone so connected to the sea you must have been uh, really excited for that part of the course yeah I was and I remember thinking actually when I think it was like the first week um I felt really sad that I wasn't able to do that. And I was thinking, oh, like, does this close off so many options to me now? Is this, you know, is this it? Can I not, have I made the wrong decision because I can't dive? Um, but that's like completely not the case. Um, and 
uh, even when I went to the Galapagos, uh, I think there was kind of like a 50-50 split um, with uh, divers and non-divers. Um, but I, I think snorkeling is really underrated. <laughs> um, so yeah, I'm a, I'm, I love snorkeling. So uh, that was kind of the saving, <laughs> saving grace yeah. there. Um, but it completely, it doesn't close off any, any options. I mean, unless you, you know, you're dead set on being like a underwater uh, camera operator then. Yeah, maybe. <laughs> yeah, well, that, that's really good to, to hear. And I think share with a lot of my course, because there was quite a few people who were, I think, thought the diving comprised of a much larger part of the course than it does. I think there was a lot of people who were very concerned, you know, going, oh, what's the point in carrying on with the first year if we aren't diving or if we aren't diving until later or if we don't know when we're going to dive and I think it's important to as a graduate for you to say that you know it, it, there's so much more beyond just the dive side of the things um yeah that's a really important point thanks for answering that um I guess before we finish this is just something I do with all my guests uh, it really won't take long but it's a little quick fire round um so it's kind of just four Quick questions, uh, I guess just answer as, as quickly as possible, really. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So first off, this might be really obvious given what we've just spent the last 40 minutes or so, 50 minutes almost talking about, but what's your favorite animal? Oh yeah, I'm gonna have to say orca. Um which will come as no surprise. <laughs> uh, where's somewhere that you like to go and connect with nature? Kind of the, the one place that you feel really at home outside? Um, oh, I would say the Mendips in Somerset. Um, it's somewhere that I walk, run, you know, just love to, love to spend time there. Um, and it's not, it's not coastal, there's no ocean, but it's just really tranquil. Um, but ocean side of things uh i am just i know i've said this before but i'm just really itching to get back out to uh vancouver island because that was just somewhere that i felt um really at home with so fingers crossed it's gonna be out there soon <laughs> uh do you have a conservation hero oh um so i would say rick O'Barry. um whether whether he's a conservationist or not i'm not entirely sure what he classes himself as so i don't know if i've got that wrong uh but to me he's my conservation hero just because he he's done so much work um for the for captive cetaceans and has had a really interesting journey from um training these animals um and working with them so closely in that respect to sort of uh now fighting for kind of their their welfare and their freedom so uh him and Another one would be Dr. Naomi Rose, who um, also is um, so a marine biologist, but has done a lot of work for um, captive cetaceans and continues to do so. And last off, how do you take your coffee? Well, I take my coffee of oat milk. So I think we can kind of wrap it up. Uh, but before we finish, I just want to ask where can people find you? Kind of what your online handles and sort of where do you share most of your, your work? So I'm most active on Instagram and my handle is uh, at Media by Mads. Um, the same on Facebook. I try to remember to post there, um, but Instagram is sort of my main one. Um, I do have a website, uh, which is mediabymads.com. Um, you can watch uh, Tales of Confinement, um, which was the film that we've been talking about on YouTube. And again, it's Media by Mads on there as well. Great. Well, thanks so much for doing this and coming on. And yeah, I'll, I'll let you know when it's out. I think this is going to be, even with the editing, it's going to be one of the longest episodes I've done. And it, we've talked about some really, really important topics and, and conversation. Um, so I'll be really pleased to release this to everyone and share it with as many people as possible. Great. Thank you for having me. Thanks again to Madison for taking the time to speak to me today. All the links to her social media will be in the description down below. So I said that today we're featuring coffee from Easy Jose. This company is a brilliant coffee company that work directly with the many indigenous people in the Amazon rainforest. They work closely with community leaders and experts on the ground 
to create a sustainable future for indigenous coffee producing communities and help conserve the rainforest. You can find out more about the details of this particular coffee through the link in the episode description. So if you've listened to the podcast before or follow me on Instagram, you might know I have a Kofi page. This is a small page I have set up to help raise money so I can directly support small coffee growing communities and coffee companies, independent coffee companies. If you'd like to help me help these people and these groups in various ways, please consider supporting me on Ko-fi. You can find me through the link in my Instagram bio and the description. Coffee with Conservationists is now available on Spotify, Anchor, Google and Apple Podcasts and a few more places. Now, for the past few months, I've been recording these podcast episodes in my flat at university and my flatmates have been incredibly accommodating by keeping quiet in the evenings when I'm recording, which is sometimes a big ask for a flat full of seven students. So this weekend it's my flatmate's birthday and she loves orcas, so I thought I'd give her a birthday shout out. Happy birthday Neska and as requested by very popular demand, I will wrap up this particular podcast episode by saying, Orca! As ever, thank you all so much for listening. I've been your host, George Steedman-Jones, and this is the Coffee with Conservationists podcast.